Good morning, Midland Free. Wow. Be Thou My Vision. That was beautiful. Do you know that was one of my favorite songs? I don't know if you know that or not, but that is definitely one of my favorites. That's a big one. Sing that one at my funeral, please, will you? All right. Hey, don't amen too loudly. Not quite ready for that yet. All right. Welcome here. We're glad you're here. Uh, Merry Christmas. Tis the season, as you know. The uh, calendar is about to change months, and we are delighted, not for the shopping or all the great deals, but instead to celebrate the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. One of the ways we're doing that at Midland Free is uh, giving you the opportunity, either as an individual or as a family, to uh, pursue this booklet right here. It's called From the Manger to the Cross. It's basically a one-page, short, daily devotional. But what's really cool about it is that it is um, basically like a shot in the arm. It is some of the best written stuff out there by some of the best evangelical scholars in the nation. And it will be creative, artistic, inspiring, exegetical and theologically accurate as well so these booklets are back at the faith at home center just directly behind our auditorium if you'd like you may pick one up for free and if you're not a hardback or uh, paperback type person you can also subscribe online you'll see a link to that in your bulletin so you can just get them sent to your phone your computer your email or whatever you want so a couple different options for you there to encourage you throughout the month as we celebrate uh, the first coming of Jesus Christ. Speaking of Christmas, I have a question for you. I'd like to get your honest answer so you don't have to tell the person next to you. You don't have to tell me. You don't even have to write it down because you probably don't want anybody else to see it. But just between you and you, Answer this question, if you will. What do you want? What do you want? No, honestly, really, what do you want? I suppose you have a Christmas list, or at least some ideas that you've begun to share with the significant other in your life. But at this point, I'm not talking about socks or a new snowblower or anything like that. But instead, I'm saying to you this morning, if you could have limitless opportunity, limitless possibility, endless resources, and if, for example, hypothetically speaking, I had a magical wand that I could simply wave and give you one wish... Just one, but guaranteed ability to grant it. What would it be? What do you want? Now, let me throw a few out there and see if any of these uh, ring true. A new vehicle. That would be pretty nice. Perhaps a relationship or a mended one. Maybe money, a million dollars, a billion dollars, how much would you like? 
I can give it to you, but only one thing. Perhaps it's not money or relationship or vehicles, but instead maybe it is health. Perhaps you've been struggling or you know someone who is, and you would like the gift of eternal well-being. What do you want? What I would say to you this morning is, if that were actually true, it would obviously be pretty cool. But beyond that, what would happen is this. I think I would wave my wand and you would get your one wish, whether it's money, relationship, health, whatever. And you would be really happy for that time. But at some point, you would come back to me and say, "Eh, I've got that, but not this. I have the money, but no relationship. I have the relationship, but now we don't have anywhere to live. I have the car, but no place to go. I have health, but no friends. And I think the reality is, if we are honest with ourselves, what do we really want? We want all. We want all that. We want endless resources... Perfect health, perfect relationships, and a perfect home. That is what we really want. But that's so impossible, Pastor Jeremy. That's just not possible on this planet. Why then God, why would he create us in such a way so as to give us a desire that can never be fulfilled? For just when we think we've arrived at one place, we discover there's something more that's missing. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, creatures are not born with desire unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desires, and well, there's such a thing as sex. But if I find myself, in myself, a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that that universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, then I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for, of which they are only uh, these earthly blessings and the other, never to mistake them for something else, of which they are only a kind of a copy, or an echo, or a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. Partial glimpses and half-fulfillments only point to the thing itself. What you actually want is not any of that, but instead, what you want is God. 
He himself is all of that. He is your eternal home. He is your eternal pleasure. He is your eternal relationship. He is your unlimited resource. He, God himself, is all of that. And your desires for other things are only minuscule models of that which is the greater. God is everything you want. So today as we review this final look at Nehemiah, we've gone through nine different sermons. Congratulations, you've made it. We're wanting to wrap it all up and connect the dots and say, what is this all about? And I think in the end, the way you can summarize Nehemiah's message or God's message to us today is this, is that God is everything you want. The way we'll do that in today's sermon is we'll move it through in two parts. The first part is sort of a review of Nehemiah. And the second is to essentially explain what is God's essence. Who is God? What is he like? Why would he be everything I want? So, in order then, the way we'll pursue it is Nehemiah. We will review the theme, the main theme, the various parts, and then the plot. I'll give you the main theme, the parts, and the plot. And then with regard to God, I will essentially say that his essence is this, that he is a great and awesome God, and he is covenant-keeping as well. So the theme of the sermon is that God is everything you want. The theme of Nehemiah is that God is the great and awesome covenant-keeping God. So if you have your Bibles then, I'd invite you to turn back to the very first chapter of Nehemiah, chapter 1. I'll begin reading in the fourth verse. And I think verses 4 through 11 well summarize this theme. Beginning at the very front of the story is the idea that's moving the whole story along. So this is Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. It says this, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned before you. Verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, Here is the covenant. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. 
Now, if you recall, when we started this story, I said to you that Nehemiah is not the story of Nehemiah, but instead, Nehemiah is the story of Nehemiah's God. And I hope that as we have pursued that course that you have seen, that in fact, Nehemiah knew that very well. That he himself was not the source or inspiration behind the idea to rebuild. That he himself would not be the um, catalyst or motivating factor behind the people to rebuild. And then in the end, when the project was successful, that he himself would not get the credit. Instead, it is, as verse 5 says, God, the Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who, this is his essence, this word pulls it out for us. It is a small three-letter word that tells us who he is. Who is he? He is the God who is great and awesome and keeps his covenant. Now, those two parts, I would say to you this morning, are in a sense, the essential essence of God. Part A, the great and awesome, and part B, the covenant keeping. Part A, the great and awesome, and part B, the covenant keeping. And what happens is this, as you read this book, you will see that the book, in fact, breaks down into these sections. The first half of the book, these are the parts of the book. I just gave you the theme. Now here are the parts. The parts, according to the theme, are these. Part A is basically the rebuilding of the wall. That's the great and awesome part. That's where the people are like, wow, we can't believe the Lord God accomplished this. This is a miracle in the face of the enemies and sheer defiance to the peoples of the land. In only 52 days, God rebuilt the wall. Wow, great and awesome. Then the second half of the book is the covenant-keeping part. This is where God, in terms of our story, restores and revives his people. So he has rebuilt, he has restored, and he has revived those three things which you see on your bulletin Combining together, those make up the great and awesome covenant-keeping God, or the two parts of the book of Nehemiah. The rebuilding of the walls and the restoration of the people. The power and the might that rebuilds and the love and the grace that restores. Those two themes give you the full picture. So then, if, if you see what I'm doing with this, hopefully you'll realize that this is why you want God. Because in your life, what happens is this, is when you have a problem, you have something that needs fixed, or someone's attacking you, and you need defended, you want the great and awesome part. You want the big, strong, and mighty to step in and help. This is something you are not big enough to carry, a burden that is too heavy for you. And you need someone stronger. You want the great and awesome to jump in. But at the same time, you want the great and awesome. You're praying, oh, Lord, please take care of them. Bring your justice and your wrath to reign upon my enemy. At the same time, what are you saying of yourself? Lord, be gracious and merciful, and gentle, and loving to me. So not only do you want the great and awesome, but you also really want 
the compassionate, the forgiving, and the gracious as well. You want both. And you certainly don't want one without the other. God is everything you want and you need both parts of him. So then, let's see how this plays out in Nehemiah. Just to refresh your mind, here's the plot. And in fact, if you think about it carefully, the plot goes further back than the actual book itself. The plot actually begins in the Mosaic Covenant, or the promise to Moses that if you obey me, I will bless you, and if you don't, I'm going to punish you. If you follow after God with all of your heart, I will reward you, and if you don't, you're going to go into exile and you're going to struggle. Well, obviously, this has happened to Nehemiah and his people. They have rebelled and sinned and rejected God. So God punished them and sent them into exile. Now that they are in exile, the deal is, if you repent of your sins and return to me, then I will heal you and restore your land. And so operating under this agreement or this covenant, Nehemiah feels the burden for his people, the burden for his homeland, and he begins to repent of their sins and call upon God. And God, being the faithful and covenant-keeping God, then says, hey, I hear you. Let me help. And as a result, he moves this thing forward. Nehemiah gets the permission he needs from the um, ruler of Persia. He goes back. He gets the supplies. He gets the paperwork. He begins to rebuild. The people get on board. There's some opposition, but God helps him deal with that. And then after the opposition is taken care of, the wall is completed. They rededicate it. There's revival, and everyone's happy. And then, of course, Nehemiah goes back home, and they fall away again. He comes back and does one final uh, revival. This is how God, the great and awesome covenant-keeping God, is working throughout the book of Nehemiah. Let us look then to see what God's essence is like, then theologically speaking. Okay, so there's Nehemiah. There's a snapshot. There's a picture. That is Nehemiah. Now let's look at the bigger picture and see how God's essence applies to us and transcends both the book of Nehemiah and all of time from the beginning to the very end. So let us look then at the Old Testament and the movement of God's great and awesome and his covenant keeping. And then we will move to the New Testament as well. So great and awesome in the Old Testament. At the very beginning, God, there was nothing and God spoke and it came into being. By the sheer um, act of his word, it happened. In other words, when God desires something, he simply speaks and it does. It is quite different for us who say, man, I'd like to do that. Boy, I really should. Oh, I just remembered, but then I didn't follow through. No, when God thinks of something, it happens. It does. He speaks and it occurs. He speaks the word into existence. And as a result, it demonstrates his great power at creation. Then the world goes bad and he decides, well, I can take care of that. And he offers to completely destroy it. But there is Noah. And so in his great power, he floods the earth and destroys evil. 
Again, evil rises up in the form of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. It suppresses his people and God remembers his people and with a mighty and outstretched hand, he delivers them. He delivers them from Egypt and to the promised land and the rulers there resist and yet God smashes down the walls in the city of Jericho. The giants rise up and they try to kill God's anointed king and he smashes them down as well. The prophets of Baal oppose him on Mount Carmel and he mocks them. The Persian kings in the time of Nehemiah They too oppose the work of God. And yet, all the way through, God demonstrates that he is the one who is driving this thing forward. He is the great and awesome God, the divine warrior who fights on behalf of his people. And this, my brothers and sisters in Christ, should be an encouragement and comfort to us. We who are in need of his power... We who are in need of his strength can look back in history and see how God, on behalf of his people, fights for them all the way through. So that when you come up against an obstacle or a discouragement or something difficult in life that you cannot overcome, it's not on you. The pressure is off. And you can lean back and relax and you can walk around the walls and blow your trumpet and not even have to pick up a sword knowing that it's God who breaks through the barrier, not you. He is the divine warrior, the great and awesome God who fights on behalf of his people. Now, that is his awesomeness. He also is described as covenant keeping. If you take each one of those situations, creation, the flood, Exodus, Jericho, Goliath, Mount Carmel, Jerusalem, and you look at them for their power, you can also flip the script and look at God in his compassion in the same instance. So, for example, in creation, after the fall, God is actually talking to Satan in his compassion to us. This is what he says to Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, the demons, and her offspring, people, and he... Who do you think that is? Shall smash your head and you will strike at his heel. This is a promise. The first gospel in Genesis chapter 3. So even in creation, you see God beginning his covenantal or his promise program. Here he is lining things up saying, hey, I'm going to make a promise. That from woman will will come a deliverer to smash the head of the serpent. Then in the flood, he destroyed the entire earth, but he remembered Noah and made a wind blow over the earth and the water subside and put a bow in the heavens as a sign of his covenant. God remembered. Then in Egypt, it says that the Lord heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and in Jacob. In Jericho, God remembered Joshua. In David, God remembered to give him the throne. In Elijah, God provided for him food at at the brook. And in Persia, God remembered his people as well. All throughout the Old Testament, at the same place where you see these great 
and powerful acts of God, you also see tremendous compassion as well. And that is an encouragement to us because so many times we will hear people say things like, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New, or this or that, or, you know, that's the mean, angry God, and this is the nice God. And we say, no, never, ever. There's no such thing as the mean, angry God and then the nice God. Instead, what you have is the great and awesome God and the covenant-keeping God all at the same time. They are never one without the other. They are never split apart, and they are never switched. It is not two sides of the same coin, but instead one side all the time. The great and awesome covenant-keeping God all the time. He is both powerful and loving and compassionate, and you can never separate one quality from the other. In each of these instances, you will see the exact same thing. That is why he describes himself like this in Exodus chapter 34. He says, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love, keeping his steadfast love, forgiving iniquities and trespasses and sins, but punishing those who break the law. He's both. He's both. And that, my brothers and sisters, is why when we look at the book of Nehemiah, you can see this little cupbearer, this guy who's a kicker, standing before the king of Persia. Why? Because he's confident in himself? No way. Not a chance. Instead, because he has remembered to locate himself in Christ or in the covenant-keeping God, and in that sense, he can stand before the throne, realizing not that he stands before the human throne, but instead, he stands before the divine throne. This gives Nehemiah the confidence he needs to combat the opposition and stand confidently before the king. He stands not in the presence of an earthly monarch, but instead the king of heaven. Nehemiah locates himself in the great and awesome covenant-keeping God. And so that is what I would say to you this morning. Hey, look, you want someone to deliver you. You want someone to defend you. You want someone to protect you. You want something, someone to strengthen you. You want someone to give you hope. You want someone to avenge sin destroy evil, and deal with your enemies. What you want is great and awesome. But not only do you want great and awesome, you also want gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and forgiving in sin. You want a covenant-keeping God. And the good news, of course, for us is this, is that what we want has been given to us. In the New Testament, when Luke begins his narrative, the angel comes to Mary and he says this to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and awesome. And he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the covenant promise, the throne of his father David. He is the great and awesome God. 
And then when Zechariah hears about his wife Elizabeth's pregnancy, he sings like this. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy he promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Because of the tender mercy of our God, he will give forgiveness of sins, light to those who sit in darkness, and guide our feet in the way of peace. In the Old Testament, God is the great and awesome covenant-keeping God. He is the same in the New Testament as well. And what you see in the old, you see in the new. In the old, you see Nehemiah, who is locating himself in Yahweh. He says, remember me, O God. Remember me for this and for that. God, according to your covenant, which I have obeyed, remember me. And now, in the New Testament, Is there anyone who said anything like that? Yes, indeed, there was. The first member of the new covenant, the thief on the cross. And he looked over at the great and awesome covenant-keeping God, and what did he say? Remember me. Remember me. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me, which is paradise. God, he himself, is everything we want. He is our greatest treasure, our highest reward. He is the inheritance of the saints and the reward of the righteous. He is our portion and our shield, our defender and great reward. Lamentations chapter 3 says this, and we all love it at the first part, but I want you to hear the second as well. It says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And we say to that verse, Amen, we like it. But how does it work? Because of this, verse 24 says, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in him. Nehemiah understands, the thief understands, and Jeremiah, the author of Lamentation, understands as well. What is our inheritance? Is it a million dollars? Is it a perfect relationship? It is eternal health. It is a beautiful home. In fact, it is all of that and so much more. It is God himself. What we want can never fully be had here. But knowing and experiencing that gives us the great desire to pursue that which we will have there. Our eternal inheritance, our true reward. God, he himself, is our portion. The great and awesome covenant-keeping God. 
In keeping with thanksgiving, then, I want to read you Psalm 136, at least a few verses of it. This is how we'll close this morning, but what I want you to notice is this. In this psalm, you have those two characteristics of God directly juxtaposed in every line. So in the first line, you will hear the great and awesome. And in the second line, you will hear the covenant-keeping and steadfast, especially in the latter points, and I'll point those out. Okay, so here's the introduction. Let me show you what I mean. Psalm 136 says this, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Now, here's the great and awesome. To Him who alone does great wonders. Why? Covenant keeping. For His steadfast love endures forever. In creation, here is a great big moment. To Him who by His understanding made the heavens with tremendous power. Yet, his steadfast love endures forever. In verse 10, in the Exodus, it says, To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt in great power, yet at the same time, his steadfast love endures forever. In the conquest of Canaan, in verse 17, it says, To him who struck down great kings, his steadfast love, endures forever. Verse 23, it is he who remembered us in our lowly estate, not just them, but us, for his steadfast love endures forever. He is the great and awesome covenant-keeping God who can rescue us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives good food to all flesh, his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord, the God of heaven, His steadfast love endures forever. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lord God, you are our portion and our strength. Can you say that this morning? Can you change your mind to wrap your desires around the fact that God He himself is your inheritance. Nothing else. Anything else and you will forever be eternally disappointed. But in him, you can reach complete satisfaction and joy. You can have everything you want. So that what I would say to you this morning is, in fact, your desires are not even bad. They're just not strong enough. But you need to want more. And what you do want is something less than what you could have. If we want anything less than God, we have settled for something less. The Lord is our portion and our strength. He is the great and awesome covenant-keeping God who takes care of his people and guides them with his steadfast love from generation to generation. Amen? Amen. Father, you are so good. And we confess our sin, Lord, just like Nehemiah. We admit that there are actually some times that we want something other than Jesus. And for that, we are sorry. We know that he's the greatest there is, that he is good, he's loving, he's true, he's just, and he is kind. 
we're sorry for the times we want something less than him. God, please change our desires, change our hearts, change our minds. Let our entire lives be conformed according to your will, that our greatest good, our highest pleasure, our truest joy would be seeking after you. In Jesus' name, amen.